And as you're taking your seats, uh, you can go ahead and take your Bibles, open them up to Ephesians chapter 6. We are uh, finishing up our series in the book of Ephesians in our, our mini-series called Battle Ready this morning. On the last portion of the book of Ephesians, uh, the armor of God, the familiar armor of God, and I was reminded as we kind of come to a close, as we see the finish line, and, and again, this, this battle analogy that has been given to us, I was reminded of the phrase that many of us have heard throughout our lives. Maybe it's a phrase that was said to you often. Uh, maybe it's a phrase that you are choosing to say to your kids or to your spouse, perhaps. You know what it is, right? It doesn't matter if you win or lose. It's how you play the game. Some of you have to say that to your spouses probably more than your kids. I know my wife does. Now, you know, that, that sentiment, I can appreciate that, right? That, that it's, it's in one sense, doesn't matter if you win or lose, it's how you play the game. Of course, the importance of that phrase is, is on the attitude and, and you know, the, the effort that you put in. And I think all of us can appreciate that to a degree, but let's be honest, that platitude was said primarily to those who lost the game, right? Unless you have a child who gloats repeatedly and needed that said to them as well, that phrase is often said to those who do not win, but to those who lose, and really, everyone knows, if we're honest with ourselves, that the best part of playing any game is winning. Come on, you know it's true. It is way more fun when you win the game, and that is a biblical principle, okay? okay Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, right, do you not know that all those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? And then he says, run in such a way that you may what? Win. That's my life verse. You see, I was reminded of that because I think so many of us, we live in this culture where it's, it's, it really isn't about winning or losing, especially in the school system today, right? It's about participation. Everybody gets a ribbon. Everybody gets a trophy. Everybody's on equal footing. And ultimately, we diminish this idea that competitiveness and winning and succeeding and experiencing victory is actually important. And when it comes to spiritual warfare, it's really important to understand that this is no game. It's a fight to the death. The battle is real. We've talked about that. Our enemy is real. Though we can't see him, though we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, our enemy is real and he's far more powerful than any human enemy we could possibly imagine. In the spiritual battle, you don't get a participation ribbon and a generic trophy for simply being there to the victor goes the spoils. Every army, every soldier throughout history has had one ultimate aim, victory. Victory. And there are many ups and downs in wars, many battles fought, many failures, many defeats. The question for us as we think about our lives and we think about the spiritual battle that we are in throughout all of the victories, all of the defeats, throughout all of the failures, all of the ups and all of the downs, what keeps us moving forward towards the end goal and the ultimate goal of victory? What, after we have, as Paul has called us to, taken up the whole armor of God, what is still necessary for standing firm in the strength of his might? As this book and one day our battles will come to a close, we are left with the final keys to victory. So 
So this morning, I want us to look at the three marks of a victorious church. The three marks of a victorious church, and you can just as easily say the three marks of a victorious Christian, but Paul's concern is that we're in this together. That we are an army. We're not just individual, isolated soldiers. We are an army of the Lord. He is our captain. Three marks of a victorious church. The first one is this, the commitment of a victorious church. Pray. And we see that in verses 18 through 20. Remember, Paul has laid out for us the, the armor of God. He's called us to stand firm in the strength of his might. That's the whole goal of this passage, that we would stand firm in the midst of the battle. And the way we do that is by putting on the armor of God. And if you remember all the way back to the first message I preached on this, I said, to put on the armor of God, each piece requires us to believe something, to obey something. And I said this way back then, like five weeks ago, there's something to also pray. To put on the armor of God faithfully, to put it on fully, there's something we need to believe, there's something we need to obey, and there's always something to pray. In fact, prayer, as we see here, is arguably the most vital part of putting on the armor of God. Verse 18 says it like this, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayers and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me. That words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare boldly as I ought to speak. It is vital for a victorious Christian, for a victorious church to be a church that is committed to pray. You see, prayer, when you think of it especially in this battle analogy, is constant communication with our commander-in-chief. We cannot know what prayer is for until we know that life is war. You see, life is war. That's not all it is, praise the Lord, but it is certainly not less than that. Paul has made that abundantly clear in this passage, and he does throughout the entire New Testament. We're fighting a genuine war, a spiritual battle. And you see, our weakness in prayer is owing largely to our neglect of this simple truth. You see, if we truly understood the significance of the war we're fighting, that would drive us and compel us to a more committed prayer life. That's what Paul is driving us toward this morning. Prayer, you see, is primarily a, a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. Prayer is not something simply we use to get good stuff from God to keep us comfortable in this life. It is a constant sense of communication, a constant display of our neediness for God's power, for God's strength, for God's wisdom, for God's direction. We go to God for our marching orders, and we go to God for the power to follow through with those orders. Praying here, that word in verse 18, praying is, is a participle. In other words, it's not a direct command. It's relating back to the primary driving verb in this entire passage, which is to stand. So in other words, what Paul is saying is if you truly want to stand in the battle, you have to be praying. You cannot truly stand in this battle unless you are a person of prayer. Prayer is the declaration of our dependence upon God. It is the ultimate statement of our own insufficiency and inadequacy to be victorious in our own strength. 
What Paul does here is incredibly helpful. You see, Paul actually gives us a tutorial on prayer. He preaches a mini-sermon on prayer, and it breaks down in such a, a neat, kind of fascinating way. You'll notice there, if you didn't catch this already, the emphasis on the word all. Did you catch that? You can circle that in your Bibles. That would probably be if you highlight, if you circle, and if you're afraid to do that, this is the, the permission you need maybe this morning to go ahead. You can do that. Circle that word all. You see, Paul is driving this all-inclusive sort of prayer life, a lifestyle of prayer here. He wants to make it clear that this is something that is not to be neglected and not to be missed if you're going to stand firm. And the four alls in this passage, they actually answer for us four questions and provide four answers, okay? So here's the first one. Uh, When? When you think of prayer in your life, when? And the answer that Paul gives is perpetually. It's perpetual. Like, when do I pray? All the time, Paul says. There is never a bad time to pray. This is the same thing that Paul says in 1 Thessalonians when he calls the church to be praying without ceasing. Now, for some of us, this takes a shift in how we understand prayer. You see, the Bible actually talks about prayer in three spheres, you could say. There are kind of three prayer spheres in the Christian life. The first sphere of prayer that every one of us needs to embrace is the personal kind of secluded sort of prayer. That that is an intimate kind of prayer where it's you and you alone before God, a quiet place, no distractions, where you're able to simply get before God in quietness and in rest with God and to commune with him. The second sphere of prayer that God gives us throughout scriptures that we see is a corporate or a communal sort of prayer where God calls the church together to be regularly meeting with one another for the primary purpose of prayer, of petitioning God together in joint unity. But the third sphere of prayer that God gives us in scripture is what we see here and what I just mentioned in 1 Thessalonians, and that is this, that there is to be an ongoing or perpetual sort of prayer that takes place in each one of our lives. It's a little bit more casual, you could say. It feels a little bit more like constantly talking with a good friend who's walking beside you all the time. And that's the the picture that God wants to give you, that he is actually with you all the time. He's given you his spirit. He's with you wherever you go, whatever you face. And he's always kind of there as the friend saying, hey, do you want to just talk about this real quick? And most Christians, I think, in one sense, struggle with this idea of being in constant prayer because I think we also struggle with the other two spheres of prayer. Paul is really getting at a life that is in constant communication with God, in open conversation. You say, why? When it comes to the, the battle analogy, here's, here's why this is so strategically important, because there are no timeouts in war. I mean, there has been technically in the past, if you think of this in a historical sense, you know, oftentimes in wars, uh, the World War, even in, in particular, they, they stopped fighting. They strategically decided to stop fighting on Christmas Day. But you want to know something? When it comes to the spiritual battle we're fighting, Satan doesn't take a time out for Christmas. In fact, you want to know what he does? He ramps it up. There's no moments where you're tired and maybe you're out of breath and you're out of energy and you're, you know, you're injured and you're wounded and you look up at your opponent, Satan, and all his demonic powers that follow his lead and you just say, hold on, can we just time out for a second? Let me just catch my breath. That's not how Satan operates. In the chaos of the battle, you cannot lose contact with your commander and chief. There can be no radio silence, not if you want to survive the attack, not if you want to experience victory in the attack. 
But notice that Paul qualifies this for us. He tells us that we are to pray at all times, but did you catch what he says there? Look at verse 18 with me. In the Spirit. In the Spirit is the way we're supposed to be praying at all times. This is not speaking about some kind of a mystical, um, supernatural speaking in tongues. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about the constant place we're supposed to find ourselves in when it comes to prayer. We are to be the kind of people who pray in the Spirit. You say, well, what is praying in the Spirit then? It's praying in dependence upon the Spirit. It's prayer that is motivated and empowered by the Spirit. John Piper says that praying in the Holy Spirit is to be moved and guided by the Holy Spirit in prayer. He says, we pray by his power and according to his direction. Now, there's two ways that this typically happens in the Christian life. The first is the most important because it actually leads into the second. And it's important to understand, too, that the the Spirit has already been mentioned in this context. In the previous verse, which is actually, this is a part of, there's no period here. Did you notice that? It flows right out of verse 17. Remember what we talked about last week? Where Paul said, take the helmet of salvation and what? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Then he moves right into praying at all times in the Spirit. There is a connection there that we cannot afford to miss. We saw last week that the Word of God, the Bible, is the inspired Word of God. It is inspired by His Spirit. And so the call here, in one sense, is to be a people of the Word, so much so that our lives are directed in every way by the Word. We know what the Spirit of God has said to us. He's given it to us in this book. So as we study this book, here's what we find out. We possess the mind of God. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We have here the mind of God given to us by the Spirit of God. So the more we find ourselves here, looking here for what God thinks, for what God says is true, for what God says is right, the more in tune our hearts become with the Spirit within us who shares the mind of God because He is God. This is why, by the way, what we did this morning, what we've been doing for quite some time now, um, during our announcement time. I don't know if you've, you've caught this, but if, if you, this hasn't been clear to you, let me just make this just over the top, explicitly clear. We have been trying to demonstrate what it looks like to pray the scriptures. Have you caught that? We, we've been trying to show and to teach that we read the scriptures, and then what we do is we think about those scriptures, and then we turn those truths back to God in prayer and in communication, and we say, God, yes, we don't want to be this. Yes, help us to see if this is us. God, help us to be what you're calling us to be in this. See, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to model and show you that this is the best way to pray the word of God and the will of God by the Spirit of God. God's word informs us of his will, which infuses our prayers with God's spirit. But the second way this happens, this is primary, okay? The primary way is that we are people of the word. Uh, We are praying in the spirit when our prayers reflect the truth of scripture, the mind of God delivered by the spirit of God. But the second way this happens, our praying in the spirit, is I think kind of informed a little bit by Romans 8, 26 and 27. Let me just read it to you. It says this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. 
for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You see, what we find out there is that the greatest prayer warrior in the church is the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is constantly interceding on our behalf. And there are points, I don't know if you've ever felt like this in your life, where, I don't know, maybe the pain is too great, the circumstance is too challenging, the sin so overwhelming. You simply don't know how to pray as you ought to. You simply are on your face before the Lord. You're trying to figure out what to say. And in moments sometimes, listen, of this kind of weakness, the Spirit of God overwhelms our hearts and minds with what we ought to pray. There have been countless times in my life where I believe with all my heart that the Spirit of God has woke me up in the middle of the night. Vividly waking me up with someone, something, some particular issue to pray for. That there have been countless times, listen, where I have received phone calls from people who have said, I, I was praying for you yesterday. I don't know why. I just felt like I needed to pray for you. And they had no idea what was happening at that exact moment, but how desperately at that very moment God was faithful to use them to answer some prayer that I desperately needed in my life. I'm just telling you that the Spirit of God, listen, this is supernatural. We have a supernatural God who works in supernatural ways to guide us and lead us and instruct us in our prayer life. Now, here's what I would say to you. That rarely happens, that kind of moving of the Spirit and provoking and prompting of the Spirit, that rarely happens in any believer's life if they are not also believers who are deep in the Word of God. It just doesn't happen that often. Because when your heart is deeply tuned by the word of God to the spirit of God, the spirit of God just has way more freedom to operate in your life. There's so much more clarity because you've been already listening to the spirit of God. You've been hearing the spirit of God through the word. And and I trust, listen, the response has been obeying the spirit of God through the word of God. That the Spirit just delights to take a heart that is so, listen, so in tune and so pliable and so moldable and so ready and willing to hear that just directs and guides and prompts and provokes. And that is a beautiful, listen, a beautiful experience of the Spirit's moving in a life that so many Christians never experience. And my heart for you would be that you would become a person who is praying at all times in the Spirit. You would be a person who's in tune with the Spirit of God because you're so steeped in the Word of God. You're so longing for the Spirit to do a work in your life, to illuminate your eyes, to convict your soul, to encourage and comfort. You know, most people pray, but most of our prayers tend to be wish lists. Christmas prayers, kind of the way I like to think of them. What do I want from God? Or prayers for protection. By the way, Neither of those things is inherently bad, and we're going to see that in just a minute. But praying in the Spirit involves an engagement with God and assistance from the Spirit that takes us beyond our immediate concerns. We need to cultivate this kind of moving of the Spirit in our lives through a constant, ongoing conversation. That's what is being called for here. Notice this, that the question that's being asked next is what? Well, what do I pray for? Especially in the context of spiritual warfare. You notice here, petitions. Petitions. He says this, with all prayer and supplication. 
What he does here is he moves from this generalized understanding of prayer. He says, look, you, you can pray about anything. You pray all the time. You can pray about anything. But then he moves into the specific category of supplications. The, the word kind of has this sense of urgency. There is a pleading involved in this word, and it is a lot more specified in terms of actual requests from the Lord. Petitions. And you just think of the term petition. We use the term petition all the time. Um, people sign petitions, right? People pass around petitions. There are, there, you probably get them like once a day on the internet. Sign this petition, sign this petition. You know, there are really, really um, illegitimate petitions, but there are some really legitimate petitions. And what you're doing, when you put your name on, on a petition, you are approaching the powers at B, and you are requesting that they do something very specific or not do something very specific, that they change the, the direction or, or they do something that maybe you can't quite um, see or, or, or believe would be right. And you see, God calls us to come and make petitions of him. All kinds of petitions. I think of what James says, you do not have because you do not ask. And that is specifically relating to wisdom in the midst of trials, but it is so much broader than that too, I believe, that God actually invites us to come. I mean, I wonder how much we're lacking in our lives, how many good things, how many good spiritual things we're lacking in our lives because we simply do not go to our good and gracious Heavenly Father and ask the God who says he loves to give good gifts to his children, right? He says that. And yet, here we are, oftentimes, so afraid to ask God. And again, the sense of, of, of urgency here, it also implies a sense of boldness in our asking. You say, well, how can I boldly, I mean, shouldn't I just go to God timidly and say, God, uh, maybe if you like, if you, if you think it would be a good idea? Listen, listen, we have full access to the throne of God's grace through Jesus Christ, okay? Jesus Christ has gained, given us entry into the throne of God's grace. You know, it's, it's kind of like the, the setting in Esther. You know, when Esther is timid about going into the presence of the king because she hasn't been solicited to come, she hasn't been asked to come, and if you walked into the presence of the king in that culture, in that day and age, without being invited, you actually risk death itself. It was a dangerous thing to walk into the presence of a king, unsolicited, unrequested. And yet what happens with, with Esther is that the king sees her coming in and his heart for her is so loving, it's so benevolent, it's so gracious. What does he do? He extends this scepter, a symbol, listen, that she is welcome in the presence of the king to come and make requests of whatever she wants. Listen, church, this is the awesome news. Through Jesus Christ, the golden scepter has been held out to you and me. We walk into the throne room of God. We grab hold in boldness because it's already been extended. It's been given to us to come into the presence of God. Make requests of your good king and your gracious father. The reality, too, is we can come in and make these kind of requests with boldness because we have already, hopefully, had our hearts tuned by the Spirit of God to the Word of God. So, so we come in with boldness, not asking selfishly, not asking for, for trivial things only, you know, for, for no real purpose, but we can come in knowing that our hearts have been molded and shaped by the Word of God and the Spirit of God, 
God's thoughts have become our thoughts. God's mind has become our mind. God's desires have become our desires. So when we come, we come with boldness because we're saying, God, would you give me what I already know you want to give me? Would you bless me the way you already say you're going to bless me? And listen, boldness does not do away with humility. There is always humility when we come before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, but we come in a position of faith, believing what the gospel says about us, that we are loved and accepted, that we are made children and co-heirs with Christ. We always pray, listen, yes, with boldness, but with an open hand, knowing that we may not always be motivated rightly, we may not always see things correctly, and we trust that God does. But when we come according to God's word and in line with God's will for the glory of God's name, I want to encourage you, listen, ask boldly. Ask boldly. Petition God. Storm the throne of grace with boldness and see how God might be faithful to answer. Next, Paul answers the question of how. How do we pray? How do we pray? What manner should our lives be molded in prayer? And the answer is perseverance perseverance, he says next, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Like good soldiers, we need to keep alert and not fall. Remember, the context here is spiritual warfare. This is the primary purpose of this kind of prayer that Paul is giving us. So this picture of keeping alert, this idea of being watchful, it comes because Paul has been fleshing out the battle scene. Jesus had encouraged his disciples to stay awake and pray. Remember that? In light of temptation and in light as well, he calls believers to pray even now in light of the weakness of our flesh and in view of the return of Christ. Perseverance is such a a vital component to a healthy prayer life. All perseverance is utterly necessary if we're going to continue to experience victory. Steve Gundy said the following about his time with the African International Prayer and Missions Movement. It's uh, located in Africa. He describes his experience there. He says, I experienced the persevering prayer life of his people when I climbed Mount Ambarcharo, and uh, that's in Ethiopia. A 10,000-foot peak where over 100,000 believers climb to gather for prayer annually in January. He says, the climb was difficult, There were no switchbacks or plateaus. It was five miles of unending incline and uneven ground all the way to the summit. At the summit, he says, I was exhausted but rested in the prayers heard from the people who come throughout the year. Although there was a language barrier, there were no barriers hearing the fervent hearts of those lifting their prayers to God. I joined them praying prayers of repentance, praying for my family, church, and country. He says, I, I thought the hard work of climbing, man, Ambaricho was over, but that was a foregone conclusion. It was very challenging. All the way down the mountain, my leg muscles were engaged. Even when attempting to stand still, the uneven ground created resistance. I had to stay alert at all times to keep my footing. My legs were shaking from fatigue, but the only option was to keep going. That's perseverance, a steadfastness in doing something despite difficulty and delay with achieving a desired outcome. 
You see, when we're laboring in prayer, perseverance matters greatly. Here's why. Because Satan is going to attack when you least expect it. You never know when he's going to attack. And, and in fact, the more tired you are, oftentimes, the more vulnerable you are. But Satan doesn't attack kind of like that old school soldiering. You know, when they used to get out into the battlefield, they'd line up and they'd have like an official start to the battle. Satan fights with guerrilla warfare, the element of surprise, sneak attacks. He fights dirty. He'll bite you, right? He'll scratch. He'll pull your hair. He doesn't come along, you know, ring the bell. All right, ding, 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 let's go. Put him up. He doesn't go to touch gloves, okay? You go to touch gloves with Satan, he's going to sucker punch you. But you see, the truth is, listen, as we just consider our lives, at times we are fatigued from the laboring and prayer. I know that's true for some of you in here. I know some of you have just labored intensely, emotionally, painfully in tears for year upon year upon year for a variety of things. And laboring in prayer, especially when we are praying over circumstances that are painful and prolonged, man, that's exhausting. That's why Paul comes alongside of us and says, listen, stay alert. Be watchful. With all persistence. Because to persist in prayer is to overcome fatigue and discouragement and hardships. It is to bring those things themselves to the Lord. It is to bring our fatigue even in prayer to the Lord and say, God, I'm so tired. I don't know if I should keep praying for this. I read one account of Hudson Taylor, the great missionary, who was once asked if God believed he should have been praying for these two men for so long. And he said, if God didn't want me praying for them for 50 years, why did he then now choose to save them? Listen, it's, it's never too late. You never know how God is going to use the laboring of your prayers, the pers- perseverance of your prayers to do a mighty work even at the very last moment in the lives of another person. You see, this leads us to the last part of what we are called to pray for, the last question, who? And the simple answer is people. Specifically, all the saints. This does not preclude praying for unbelievers, but remember, again, the context is spiritual warfare, and and the context is is, is in the communal aspect, that we are in this battle together, and so he says, listen, pray for your fellow soldiers, pray for all the saints, that the saints are those who have been saved by the grace of God, who follow their captain, Jesus Christ, into battle. We make supplication for all the saints. Paul modeled this all throughout his entire life. He was constantly writing in his letters the reality that he was praying for them. (laughs) We pray about a lot of things in life for physical and material needs, for health and for help. Those are all good and right, but we must also pray for others. We must make it a point, in fact, biblically speaking, to have at the top of our prayer list prayers for the saints. Prayers for their strength and ability to stand, for their protection and perseverance in the things of the Lord. Paul quickly specifies how we can best pray for others as well by asking that we pray for him. Did you notice that? He says, yeah, pray for all the saints. I love this because it expresses such humility on the part of Paul. Here's the great missionary, the great church planter, the great theologian, Paul himself, who writes the vast majority of the New Testament, and here's what he says, and also for me. Pray for me. 
that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the gospel, the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare boldly as I ought to speak. I love that about Paul. Talk about perseverance as well. The guy's in prison. What a great time to give up, right? Nah, I'll just leave it to somebody else. Clearly, my time has come and gone, and that's not what Paul does. In fact, we know this from Scripture, that Paul, even in prison, is preaching the gospel. He's singing hymns, preaching Christ with all of his heart. He doesn't care what you do to him. He doesn't care what you say about him. And yet at the same time, did you just catch this? In the same time, he asked that he would still be speaking with boldness, which actually implies, listen, that, that maybe fears at times crept into Paul's heart. Maybe there were times where Paul was asking the question, is this really worth it? I mean, this is hard. This is painful. I am so sick of being beaten and stoned, right? In the spiritual war, God's church has been given one ultimate mission, to go and make disciples, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. You know, it's really easy to, dr- to drift from this mission. We don't naturally drift towards it. You notice that? It is hard and costly to preach Christ, increasingly more so in a culture that despises Christianity. And again, Paul's in chains as he writes this letter. He knows the cost, okay? He gets it, and if we think we have it bad, let's just be reminded here, it's not this bad, right? Not for us. And while we don't have this particular threat right now, being thrown into prison for preaching Jesus, there is always a cost to preaching the gospel. It requires us to die daily, as Jesus said to ourselves. Jesus knows that the greatest competition we have with him is us. Our hearts, our lives, our reputation, our wants, our desires, our needs, our flesh. This past week, I, I had the opportunity, and it really was a privilege and an honor to officiate a funeral for a childhood friend of mine. We grew up together. We grew up on the same street. We did a lot of stuff together, went to high school together, lost touch for quite a number of years, went our own ways. But through a series of circumstances and through some relationships in this church, about a year and a half ago, he walked into the back doors of this church and we were able to reconnect and it was very clear that that God was seeking him and he was seeking God and Last week he went to sleep and he never woke up. And uh, I got to reconnect with his family, with his parents and his sister. But it was interesting, um, when I found out that they wanted me to do the funeral, I, I called the family and the very, you know, aside from her really quick, hey, how are you? It's been so long. The very first thing his, his mom says is, look, look, we're glad you're doing this, but you know we're not religious. And that was, in one sense, an attempt to make it very clear, we really don't want a whole lot of religion in this. And I'll tell you right away, just listen, just 
In my heart, I instantly began to wrestle with this idea that here's the desires of the family. They don't want this to be religious. They don't want this to be about Jesus. They just want to make this about uh, how great of a guy he was and have a celebration of his life, all things which are great. But listen, I wrestled in my heart. I did. I wrestled in my heart with, with, with wanting to make it very clear. And I did. I made it clear. Listen, I, I'm going to come and I'm going to preach. I'm going to preach what I need to preach. And in fact, I think that, that your son would have wanted this because I really believe he, he came to know and believe the truth even uh, very recently. And then I began to think about the funeral and, you know, the people who would be showing up and some people I went to high school with that I hadn't seen in 20 years and uh, a really rough crowd, honestly, a really rough crowd. And I, I just, I began to wrestle in my heart with a little bit of a sense of fear and like, man, this is going to be, this is going to be interesting. And I just began to just pray, God, just strip away the fear. And I'll tell you this, the amount of prayer that was offered up for me um, on this day and leading up to this day, I believe God used in a significant way to embolden me with a boldness that is not my own. I was getting text messages days before. I was getting text messages the morning of, up until an hour before the funeral from people in this church, people who knew what was going on, and very clear statements. I'm praying for you that God would give you grace to preach the gospel with clarity, with boldness, to show them Jesus. And you know what God kept driving into my heart was this. These people need Jesus. They just they need Jesus. So who cares about you? Right? Who cares about your fears? Who cares about what's at stake for you and what people? Who cares? These people need Jesus. These people are living lives apart from the God who created them, and they don't even know most of them that they're separated from God because of their sin. They believe, tricked by Satan, deceived by Satan, that they are somehow, if there even is a God, as one of the people did the eulogy said, that they'll ultimately be fine with God. They believe that when they die, they'll just inherently go to a better place. This is what the average person actually really believes. God just pressed in my heart, listen, you need to hold up the truth. You need to show them, listen, that they are separated from God because of their sin. But God loved them so much, he sent their one and only, his one and only son to forgive them their sins by dying on the cross. You need to show them that there is a God. He is real. They have offended him by their sin, but he is so good. He is so loving. He is so gracious. He has come to restore through Christ. Paul's prayer is that he may declare the gospel with boldness. I love this, don't you? For that is how we ought to speak. church, listen, we have the only message that saves, amen? But it saves no one if no one will declare it. For faith comes from hearing. Evangelism is spiritual warfare. The culture opposes it. Satan is trying to prevent it, so we need God's power through the saints' prayers to do it faithfully. And if I can just make a practical application you say, well, who, who should I pray for? Who do you know that might preach the gospel every week? Can I, can I just be as bold to ask you for your prayers? Can, can I, I know some of you are so sweet, some of you are so kind to tell me that you're praying for me, text me, send me emails, but can I just ask you, can I, can I just ask you to please pray for me as I preach Christ, as, as those in the church, as in, you say, who else should I pray for? Who, how about the, the teachers who are teaching your kids every week and preaching the gospel to your kids every week? Do you pray for them? 
just, uh, we need your prayers. And listen, I, I just would commit to you. I pray for you. I mean, I, I, I pray through the prayer requests every week, but one of the things you don't know is I pray stuff that you didn't write down all the time, okay? And one of the primary prayers, I pray for every single person in this church. Whenever I think of you, I pray for any need you put down. I pray for anything that you might be on your heart, but I pray every time, I pray that God would give you boldness to preach Christ. That we would be a bold people, an unashamed people who love to hold up Christ, for he is the only one who saves. We need each other. We need to pray for each other. That's why the second mark of a victorious church is the community of a victorious church. And the call here is to participate. These last two points are going to be much shorter. The emphasis is for sure on that first point of prayer. And Paul is now branching into his final greetings. As he closes this letter, he says in verse 21, so that you also may know how I am, doing, I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. I love that. It's so simple, listen, but it's so beautiful the way that, that Paul here has such an intimate care and concern for the church. And, and, and he, listen, he, he shares, he, he sends this, this man, Tychicus, who, by the way, he's probably the guy who delivered this letter. He was actually referenced again just by the sovereignty of God in the passage that was read out of Titus as well. He's his beloved brother. He's just this faithful, faithful brother. Certainly, he has arisen in the church by his faithfulness and his character, his competency to a place of some kind of leadership. And so he probably carries this letter, and he has this great, great privilege of coming alongside the churches there, Ephesus and all the surrounding churches, and saying, listen, listen, Paul loves you. He loves you so much. He's so thankful for you. He knows that you love him. And so what he wants to do is make sure that you know how he is. That's such a beautiful thing. It's so simple, but it really is just such a precious thing. Paul is saying, listen, you've cared for me in such intimate ways. I want you to know very intimately how everything is going with the advancement of the gospel, with my life personally. It struck me as I read this that so often we are very fond of withholding from others the encouragement they need and the updates they need to continue to actively participate in what God has called us to together. This past uh, Friday night, just a couple nights ago, we, we were in here. We had our volunteer appreciation night. Many of you were there. We had 160 people filled this room, and that's only a portion of the people who serve in this church. And I was just, just struck again and reminded again of just the faithfulness of God to unite a people together. We laughed. We sang. Some of you probably cried. It was embarrassing, humiliating. But it reminded me that we were part of a family. That this is the household of God, that God, as our Father, has made us brothers and sisters in Christ where we love one another, we care for one another, we help one another, we serve one another, we disciple one another. We're all called to participate together. God has gifted us in unique ways. He's called us together to be this beautiful thing he calls the church, the united people of God who display the gospel to the world, who reflect the gospel and the grace of God to the world around us. And it also struck me that there were so many people who who won't participate actively in the body of Christ. 
There were way too many people, not just in this church, just in the church at large, who were just content to attend on Sundays, but not really participate in any meaningful ways. And and my heart is for you. I I don't want to guilt you into anything. That's not my desire in any way. I, I want to encourage you and remind you of the privilege it is to participate in this. Do you realize the privilege it is to participate in something that is so much greater than ourselves? You know, people look back at their lives and oftentimes they'll identify things in their lives that they were a part of, you know that? Like the significant moments in their lives. I remember when I, I, I saw, you know, that speech or I was present for that event. You know, these moments where they look at it and they see the importance because it's so much bigger than themselves. Listen, listen, there is nothing, nothing more important, nothing bigger that you can be a part of, nothing nothing greater than the church of Jesus Christ. Everything else you do in this life will eventually fade away. It won't even be important. It'll be a blip on the radar screen of eternity, but the church will be present for all of eternity in all of its glory as it displays the great and brilliant glory of its head, Jesus Christ. See, if you don't participate, you actually miss out You miss out on on a lot of things. You miss out on the means of God's grace in your life, the means of grace that God has given to you in the people of God to help you in your life, to help you spiritually and physically, practically, all all ways that God says, I want to bless you. I want to make you more like Jesus. And the way I'm doing that is by putting you with a group of people who are pursuing that very same thing. I have no doubt that Paul wanted to share all the good that God was doing And I think Paul loved to share the good stuff that God was doing. But it's interesting to me, too, that aside from sharing the good, we see here, even through Paul's own admission, that he has no problem sharing the struggles and the difficulties. He has no problem saying, I'm in chains. Reminds us that we, too, should have no problem sharing people about the struggles that we find ourselves in. The joys we share bring encouragement to keep fighting. The hardships we share, listen, here's the really important part. The encouragement brings joy to those who maybe have been aware or not aware of what God is doing. They can celebrate with us. Listen, but the struggles we share with one another, here's the awesome part, enlists the body of Christ to come and participate and help in your life where you desperately need it and you acknowledge you cannot do it on your own. You see, the victory that God wants to give us often comes as we participate in the community called the church. And I just wonder this morning, what victory might you experience with greater participation within the community of God, the church of Jesus Christ, as we continue to go to battle together? So, well, how, how can I participate just give me one simple way to participate. Listen, you can participate with your, your time. You can participate with your energy. Um, you can participate with the gifts that God has given you. But let me just let me give you a really specific one that you can participate in uh, with your finances. You like that? It's good, right? See what I did there? It was smooth. You guys were all hanging on the edge of your seat like, oh, no, I don't like that. No. 
And this would uh, normally be an elder update, but I, I just thought, and I was going to do that at the end of the service, but I thought this is the perfect spot. This is the perfect spot to just talk about how we participate um, in some things together. So this is like, consider this an application point, but also a mini elder update. We do an elder update, like a family chat from time to time, if you're newer with us, just to get, let you know some things going on, inform you of some things, enlist you towards some things, encourage you with some things. And so let me just start with the encouragement. You guys are awesome, okay? I mean that. Uh, you guys really are. By, by the grace of God, listen, this church has been incredibly healthy in so many ways. Listen, we got a long way to go. we got a lot of problems, okay, admittedly. Okay? But, but by God's grace, we're in a really, really healthy place, and we always have been. One of the ways we've seen God just be so faithful and encourage our hearts throughout the years is through finances, that God has always supplied in abundance what we've needed to do the work of the ministry in this place. And so for that, I just want to encourage you and just, just to let, God has been so faithful through you to provide in just an abundance of ways, but particularly with your sacrificial generosity, God has been so good. And we don't do this often where we come and say, hey, uh, we got to talk about money again, thankfully, because I do not enjoy that. Okay, that's not a fun part of my job. And by the grace of God, we haven't had to do that. But I just want to draw your attention. You got your bullets in there for a second? We have never quite been in this place as a church where we have been this far behind. Now, in the grand scheme of things, when you're looking at the, the needs for our church, just really quickly, what you see is we're roughly a little bit more than two weeks behind in terms of a normal weekly need that we have. Um, it's over $30,000. Now, I just want to say to you, and, and by the way, I want you to look at the facility fund, which we're closing out our commitments this year. We are significantly behind there. So here's simply what I just want to say to you. As we come to a close of this book, as we come to the close of this year, I, I don't know, I'm assuming, because this often happens, I'm assuming some of you are like, nah, I'm just not going to give this week. I'm going to save it all up for December, right? Right? I just want to encourage you and enlist your help in this. Um, this church is dependent upon you doing a whole lot of things. One of the things is your, is your giving. And we are so thankful. We're so grateful. But I want to enlist you to consider, even as this year comes to a close, if, if you've got some giving to make up, you know, there's, uh, you've got some weeks that you missed and that you just in, intended to give, you had the desire to give, or if God is impressing upon your heart to give more. Some of you have capacity in this room to give a whole lot more. You just do. Some of you don't, and you're tapped out and you're giving as much as you can. Praise God, this is not a guilt trip. For those of you especially maybe who have more capacity, more ability, and maybe right now more conviction, um, would you consider maybe giving and helping us? We want to not just make up in our general fund. We love to exceed it. Um, for those of you who have got commitments with the facility fund, we just we want to encourage you, please consider um, giving what you, you said you were going to give, and let's just trust the Lord for that. I believe at the end of this year... Um, we will close the gap for sure on our general fund, and uh, who knows what God will do in the facility fund, but we're, we're trusting him for that as well and looking forward to updating you on all that God is doing there. So um, maybe just one quick note to some of you who are newer. You're like, well, I, I, don't, I don't give yet. What better time to start, right? Um, we'd love for you to show your participation, your involvement in life. There's, if you've been blessed in this church, if you are growing in this church, and you're able to give as the Lord has called you to give, then we just encourage you to do that. All right, enough about that. Um, I want to take up now a second offering. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. We participate together. We laugh together. That's a good thing, too. All right, lastly, the climate of a victorious church, passion. The climate of a victorious church, passion. 
Paul here in verse 23 and 24 gives his final benediction, and here's what he says, peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. In the benediction, Paul concludes by using the words in which he began his letter, peace and grace. He also mentions faith and love, and I would just add that it is appropriate to mention love three times in a letter that emphasizes the unfathomable love of God. This love, faith, grace, and peace, they all flow from God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and this is ultimately what creates the climate of a victorious church the ethos. You see, we enjoy all of these things because of God's passion for us. That's what this reminds us of. We have grace from God. We have unmerited favor. We have peace with God, and we experience the love of God by faith that He too has given us by His grace, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. Everything we have is because of God's overwhelming passion for His people, His deep-seated love for His children. We live in that atmosphere of God's love. We soak in that atmosphere of God's love. We do not live in fear and terror of God. We live as blood-bought children of the Almighty God. We do not cower before Him. We enjoy the warm embrace. I want you to notice that Paul moves and he adds something here in verse 24 that he has not previously mentioned in this book, not explicitly. I think it's been implied, but do you see he notice here the church's love for Christ? He calls it a love that is incorruptible. He closes with a statement about their personal relationship with Christ. You see, we know of God's great love for us. He sent his one and only son He did not spare him. He put him to death on a cross. He paid for our sins in full. He rose from the grave victorious so that we might have life everlasting. And the whole point of life everlasting is knowing and enjoying the presence of God and his love forever. But here's the real question. Do you love Christ? Not do you know him. Not do you know about him. Do you love Christ? John 21, Jesus takes Peter and he restores him after his three times denying Jesus. He wants to set Peter up for victory. But he has to restore him. And so just like Peter denies Jesus three times, he comes alongside Peter and he asks him this question three times. Peter, do you love me? Because love of Christ and a love for Christ is the foundation for all true Christian victory. It is what propels us when nothing else can. It's what moves us forward for the sake of Jesus when nothing else will. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Have you turned away from sin and placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you love him with an undying love that will go on from here into eternity? This is the kind of passion that we must have in this place. This is the kind of climate we're looking to foster in light of God's great passion and love for us. Do we have a passion and love that burns for Him? 
that fuels our fight, that will not accept defeat, and that refuses to surrender at all costs. There are some fascinating stories, six in particular, I believe, of individuals who refused to surrender after World War II. Uh, Lieutenant Hiro Unoda is the most famous of the so-called Japanese holdouts. A collection of Imperial Army stragglers who continued to hide out in the South Pacific for several years after World War II had actually ended. An intelligence officer, Onoda, was dispatched to the Philippine island of Lubang in 1944 with orders, listen to this, to, surren- to not surrender under any circumstances. And when Allied forces, or forces excuse me, captured Lubang in 1945, he and three other soldiers stole away to the island densely forested hills. One of Onoda's companions surrendered to Philippine forces in 1950, and by 1972, police had killed the other two. But despite being left alone, Anoda refused to surrender and went on to evade dozens of Philippine army and police patrols. The Japanese government attempted to track him down with search parties and even dropped leaflets over the jungle telling him the war was over, but Anoda dismissed these attempts as trickery. He would not surrender until March of 1974, nearly 30 years after the war had ended, when his former commanding officer traveled to the island and ordered him to stop fighting. There's no doubt he did this for love of country. But you see, our love and passion for Jesus is to be similarly undying, incorruptible, eternal. It holds us in the battle when nothing else can. Loving Jesus is the key to victory. And when we love him, we take up his armor, we pray at all times in the spirit, we fight together, and we will not quit until our captain comes to tell us the war is over. It's time to come home. Then we will not have any regrets for having put our trust in him. And we will have no regret of having been faithful soldiers For we will find that we in him have truly been victorious.